Well, good evening. If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Acts um, chapter 8. I'm actually going to read through uh, verses 4 through 25 this evening. Um, I was only assigned 9 through 25, but I'm going to read the extra five verses because why not? Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip, you know, Philip's one of the deacons. Philip down to the city of Samaria where, and, and proclaimed Christ or to them Christ. And the crowds were of one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits uh, crying out in a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip, in the proclamation of the word, goes through and does uh, many of the signs that we see Jesus do in the gospel narratives. But... There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them as that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the, in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Father, we come. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for your word and the fact that it is truth upon which we can um, uh, understand who you are, uh, uh, truth upon which we can understand what you've done, truth which corrects our hearts and our thoughts and our intentions, Truth that then allows us to rebuild our lives, not based upon what we want or what we desire, but upon who you are and what you desire. And so, God, I pray that we would be conformed by your word, by an act of your spirit this evening, uh, and, and uh, not only this evening, but, but throughout the days of our lives, that we would be men and women consumed with the gospel and consumed uh, with the, the Lord and the God that the gospel proclaims, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. As you look at this passage, um, it's a pretty straightforward narrative. 
uh, Philip is walking through Samaria. Samaria, if, if you remember, uh, is an area between um, the northern part of Galilee, uh, north, uh, Galilee in the north, and uh, Judea in the south, and Samaria kind of sat between them. The Samaritans were, by, uh, by, by nature, half-breeds. They were uh, remnants from the time of the exile. So when the Assyrians came down in 722, and uh, overtook the northern kingdom, they, they set off, what the Assyrians would do is they would intermarry their people with people that they conquered, and in so doing, they would eradicate the conquered people so that generations later, um, as, uh, as they held sway in those regions, um, the conquered people would cease to exist and a new people would come forth. And so when, the, uh, when God brought back the exiles from all over the Babylonian, Empire uh, in, uh, after, after that exile, what happened was they came back into the land that God had given to Abram, and they found living in there half-breeds, men and women, boys and girls who were partially Jewish, like myself. I'm an Italian and I'm Irish, and the reality is we don't even acknowledge the Irish part in my home. Don't even acknowledge it. My kids are more Irish than they are Italian, but we don't even acknowledge it. It's just not there. And so, in the same way, um, these half-breeds would be, they were considered among uh, good, full, uh, full-bred Jewish men and women to be less than. I spent a lot of time in India, and India still has a caste system. And in that caste system, you have, you have a high caste, the high caste is the priestly caste, and then you come down a bit and you're in the warrior caste, and then you come down a little bit and you're in what's called the work, not the worker class, uh, it's what it's called, but it's really the, the business owner's caste, and then you come down into the actual worker's caste, uh, which is um, the, the, the largest everyman caste, and then you go even further down, there's only four castes, but there's a fifth classification of people the Dalits, and they are the untouchables. They don't belong to anything. And in this caste system, you can never get out of it. And if you, if you are of a high caste and you marry somebody of a low caste, you leave your high caste and embrace their lower caste. It's not like it, you don't marry up. You marry down. And I see, when I'm there, I see um, many, I, I know many men and women who have lost their standing in society because of the gospel who've walked away from, right? And they're now judged in the midst of society. The government, uh, their taxes, everything is based upon these things. And so um, for those that are in a lower caste, um, they can only go so far. And so in first century Palestine, in the world in which Jesus walked and then the world in which the, the, the early church was planted and begins to explode, people from Samaria are in, an, in a precarious position because they live between these two cross-sections of Jewish life, Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, uh, the Romans all around, and, and so they don't have allies anywhere. And Philip comes and he brings the gospel there. And outside of the Ethiopian eunuch, this is the first who is coming out of Jerusalem. And, and, and then, you know, if you think about the, the people gathered in Acts 2 from other nations, this is the first time we actually see the gospel uh, begin to go off into non-Jewish sectors of society here in Acts chapter 8. 
So many received the gospel, many saw what Philip saw, did, many saw and believed, and they were filled with great joy. John Pohill in his commentary on Acts says that in the gospel, there are no half-breeds. Like it doesn't matter who you are or what you've been, what you've done, where you've come from, what, what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter what your occupation is, what the color of your skin is, what your socioeconomic standing is. None of that matters. In the gospel... These people who had no opportunity in the world in which they lived in to matter, they found worth. They found something that gave them a sense of, um, of completeness and wholeness. They were made new in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so although they were prone to syncretism and to, 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 to weirdness, and we'll talk about that in a second when we talk about Simon, the gospel comes and it actually sets these people not only free from their sins, but it actually sets them on a course to have a life in this world as well. So they receive it with great joy. And in the midst of this, we're introduced to a guy named Simon the Magician. All right, now, depending on how you look at the idea that he's a magician, you could look at the, the word there and, um, and see that maybe he's like, um, he's like the magi that came to visit Jesus in, um, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, came from, from afar, but it doesn't seem to be that. Uh, what, we, what, we, what most scholars believe is that this is a, a good old hometown shyster. A guy who is just there doing tricks. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a young lad in the back corner uh, with a hat on who said to me the other day, do you like magic? Right? And he starts doing magic tricks. It's kind of goofy. You can see his tricks at the end of the time if you want. Uh, my kids, I think, figured them out and aren't really that interested or anything like that. But, right? And that's what this guy is. He's doing these tricks and people are amazed right, at the things that he's doing. And there's legitimate power here, all right? So this isn't like Stephen, who's just a charlatan. This is like a legitimate like, dude who's doing things that are actually causing people to be amazed. And the religious culture of Samaria in that day is a very syncretistic culture. It's a culture uh, it, it, spiritually that, that takes aspects of Judaism, aspects of the one true God is revealed throughout the Scriptures, and then adds into it um, aspects of their other culture, the Assyrian culture and the other cultures that were amalgamated into, into Samaria. And so it's a, what we would call a very syncretistic Judaism. When Jesus engages the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and she's talking to him as if they're talking about the same understanding of Yahweh, and Jesus is like, no, 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 you, you don't understand. And he's not talking to her like he would be talking to any other first century Jew who would at least, you know, he, he makes that statement to her where he says, you know, we Jews... Right? You know, we worship what we know. You, Samaritans, you worship something else. And the idea was because the Samaritans had a completely um, corrupted view of Judaism. Now, I would argue that the first century Jews had a completely corrupted view of Judaism as well. But nonetheless, the Samaritans had it worse. And so they're prone because of their disposition to see anybody who kind of blends these elements and believe them. Again, all throughout India we see syncretism all throughout the Indian church where there's an amalgamation of the gospel and other traditional teachings, other traditional understandings. See the same thing in Africa and those things, they bleed together, 
right? And they form this weirdness. I was just in Cuba a few weeks ago and, and, and talking to, um, uh, to, to some of the guys that we work with down there about Santeria and a lot of the, the witchcraft cults that they have down there. Many of them have aspects of Christianity in them because they've been syncretized with, with all of these, these, these thoughts over hundreds of years. And so it, it creates a diluted gospel. And so when Simon comes, he's able to amaze them. Now Justin Martyr, who was from Samaria, um, one of the uh, early church fathers, he referred to Simon the magician uh, as, Samaritan, as the Samaritan's first god. And Irenaeus, uh, also another church father, um, saw Simon as the father of all heresies. Um, and so church history tells us, because when we look at this, it's like, well, Simon, Simon repents. Simon believes. You know, church history, early church fathers record Simon. Now, the text is ambiguous, but the early church saw Simon as somebody who never really repented and never really believed that Jesus was who he said he was, never really believed in the power of the gospel. Um, and so when I look at Simon, I see you know, an example of how people, in the name of desiring God and in the, in the name of a sense of uh, a spirituality, they can be sidetracked by anything. When I was in Africa years ago, I was amazed at the. Um, I was amazed to be in a. I was in Nigeria. And there was poverty all around, and yet I was amazed at the um, prevalence of the prosperity gospel in the midst of that place. Like, like it makes sense in the suburbs, sort of. Not really, but sort of. I, I, you know, maybe in Houston it makes a little sense. If you're in what, I don't know, a former basketball arena, it makes a little bit of sense, even though it's completely godless. Um, but in the third world, the prosperity gospel makes no sense. And yet people are prone to believe anything that gives them a false sense of hope. Because most of us, if we're honest about our lives, we're looking for, we're looking for something better. Now, we, those of us who know Jesus and who have been transformed by the gospel, we recognize that there is nothing better. Yet we are in the minority. So the Samaritans, they, they had been bamboozled by Simon. They, they Just look at the way that they described him. This man is the very power of God that is called and you don't see a, a, a second line there where Simon's like, no, no, don't call me that. No, Simon, that's, his, that's how he's known. That's how he's making a living, is to be equated with God. His power, however, is trumped by the power of the gospel. And the gospel trumps it. When the people hear, when they see evidence of the gospel, they are transformed. And they're baptized. Right? The gospel goes out. And so, one of the things I think that is the crux of this text, and we'll talk a little bit more about it even at the end, is the difference between a syncretistic gospel and the true gospel. And um, I am of the opinion, and I, I think I'm in the minority of opinions within regard to, to leadership in the American church, but I am of the opinion... And I think I'm right, um, actually I know I'm right, um, that syncretism and a syncretistic gospel is so pervasive in the American church, it's 
It's sickening. And the sad reality is we don't even know it's there. Because most Christians will spend time listening to preachers or reading books or watching Yehus on TV or listening to somebody on, on the radio and they'll spend more time in that than they will right here. And it's so easy to do. You come into my office, you'll see, I don't know, a thousand books sitting on a bookshelf. I don't know how many of them are there. About a thousand, you think? A few hundred? I don't know. There's a lot of them. I read a lot of books. But none of them is this. Actually, there is a shelf of these, but that doesn't really count. <laughs> none of them is this. The American church has been so bamboozled. And we love to go after the newest thing, right? If Simon the magician walked into most churches in America, they would applaud. Because we have very few people in the American church that are tethered to Scripture. Here we talk, right? At Renovation Church, at Missio Church, right? We, we talk about missional outcomes that we're believing for in the lives of our people. The first one is that they would pursue intimacy with God. And that that is primarily pursued, not by watching some Yahoo on TV. Stop watching them on TV. All right? I don't care who that is. Stop watching them on TV. Not by listening to some guy on the radio. Not by reading some book. But by engaging God in his word and in the discipline of prayer. That, that is where intimacy with God is found. As we learn to hear God speak through his word. And as... As, as we learned here, God actually speak through His Word. Not, not what I bring to it, not the things I think that are going on in my life surrounding it, not the experiences that I have. No, 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 no. What God is saying. You want to know what God's saying? He's already said everything He's ever going to say. It's right here. It's right here. You don't need anything else. Oh, no, 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 I need a fresh word. Well, that's crap. You don't need a fresh word. You have the living word, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces between joint and marrow, the writer of Hebrews says. It exposes my heart. It lays me bare. And so, let's not be like the Samaritans, at least in the beginning. Let's be men and women who have a, a little bit more discernment. We see the apostles arrive on the scene in verse 14. It's interesting, this is the last text where John the Apostle is actually talked about. He's, he's mentioned later, but this is the last activity we see in the book of Acts about the Apostle John. After this, it goes into Peter, and then, um, and then Paul. And so this is, this is the last time we see John do anything. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Well, they sent them to Peter and John because they knew that the Samaritans would believe anything. You know, like, well, let's go see. You know, it'd be like if Boston received the gospel, we'd have to verify that because could anything good happen in Boston? I'm not sure. We'll have to see. We'll have to verify. We'll have to look. We'll have to, we'll have to examine. We're not going to just take somebody's word for it, right? When I was younger than I am today, um, and I got married, um, the criteria for getting married at that point in time in my, in my mind was, well, she's a Christian. She happened to be a hot Christian, but she was a Christian. And those were the only two things that mattered, right? 
And so people ask me today, you know, do you think you'll ever get remarried now that your wife's gone? Do you think you'll get remarried? And it's like, I don't know, because that criteria doesn't last. It doesn't hold up anymore. Like she's just a Christian. That doesn't really mean anything because there's a whole lot of people that claim to just be a Christian. Right. So the apostles, they're not just taking it, you know, at face value, even though Philip said, hey, no, good things are happening here. They're like, well, we'll, we'll, send, we'll send Peter and John, you know. We're going to send in some guys to verify that the, that the Spirit of God is at work. And so they come. Peter and John come. They come to confer whether or not the, the Samaritans had indeed received the gospel, right? Because, again, it hadn't yet expanded into foreign context. And they laid their hands on the believers as representatives of God's authority in the world. Remember, all authority in heaven and on earth I give to you. Right? He said to his apostles. Right? I would say that that authority then gets conferred to the disciples that, that not necessarily an apostolic authority, but we stand in the line of those men. But, but nonetheless, the apostles come, and when they laid their hands upon these believers, it says that the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, we, we need to be cautious here when we look at this, because there are, many, uh, there are many good, faithful followers of Jesus who read this text and see this as evidence of a second baptism. Um, I don't see that. What I see is that as the church is beginning to expand into context, the, the apostles come, and as the apostles come and lay their hands on things, then the Spirit of God seems to, 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 to come upon these people. Um, I would see that, that now anyone who is in Christ has the, the Spirit of the living God within them. That's what Paul says very, very clearly. And so what we have here, in, and I know many people who make a case for a second baptism out of this, and they say, well, well what about Acts chapter, chapter 8? And it's like, well, this is a descriptive text. This describes one thing that happened in one place. It's not a prescriptive text that then describes how things should be for all time. So whenever, and, and I know a lot of guys that are like, man, we're, you know what we're doing? We're planting a church just like the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, I was with some yahoos just the other day, and that's what they kept saying to me. No, no, man, we're like the book of Acts. And it's like, well, then you're just going to be frustrated. You're just going to be frustrated, right? Because um, do you live with those people? Have you, have you sold your car? And got rid of all your junk and live in... No, we're not taking it. That's it. Then stop saying you're like the book of Acts, okay? No. Be faithful to Jesus. Proclaim the gospel. Let's build the church based upon what we see in Scripture, biblical principles. But let's not think that just because something happened in Acts that it has to happen the exact same way today. Peter and John come. They lay their hands on these people. The Spirit of God comes upon them. And when Simon, verse 18, saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Nobody offers me money. As a matter of fact, I said, now that I'm no longer an elder here, I think I should have an honorarium for speaking here tonight. And Tim laughed at me. <laughs> saying, give me this power also. So that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Right? And so we see, we see Simon's heart exposed. We see his heart exposed. And there are a lot of people that say, well, you can't judge whether a person's a follower of Jesus or not. Well, I can look at the way that they live their life, the decisions they make, the, the way that they act. And yeah, I can. Actually, I can. Um, not that I'm looking to be that guy, that standard bearer guy. But no, we can, we can look at this guy and we can say, wait a minute, 
There's not evidence of the fruit of the Spirit of God in this guy's life. As a matter of fact, what this guy wants is the applause of people. What he wants, when he sees that there's power in the laying on of hands, he wants that. Because it's a new trick. It's adding Jesus onto. When we see a guy in India get baptized, when somebody in India actually gets baptized, it's a big deal. Because they're saying no to 800 million other gods. And they're drawing a line in the sand with regard to their own culture. And they're dying to something. And what we see Simon wanting to do is add Jesus onto a culture rather than embrace Jesus in spite of his culture. And we have to be very careful of doing the same thing. We're very careful. He desires power and position. He's willing to pay for it. And in doing so, he makes little of the power of the Spirit of God. And so what he does is he denies true power in an effort to hold on to some sense of temporal power or influence or manipulation over people. And I would say, my opinion, the text leaves it open, but this is, seems to me to be evidence of an unregenerate heart. Peter rebukes him, and he urges him to repent. And Peter seems harsh. I mean, look at the language here that Peter says, right? This, is, this isn't Mike Maisie loving, loving, loving on him, right? He says to him, um, may your silver perish with you. I can't tell you how many times Mike said, man, you're so hard. You're so, that's, that's harsh. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You've neither part nor lot in this matter. So Peter is saying, you are not among us. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I think this is the most loving thing that Peter could do for him. Is confront his sin. Confront the wickedness that's within his heart call it out, and call him to repent. Now what we see Simon do is not do that. He has a spiritual response, but it's an inadequate response. He asks Peter to pray for him. But that's not what Peter told him to do. Peter said, repent, pray, and maybe, like I believe that God can do a lot of things, but maybe God will save you. Pray for me, Simon says, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And how many times have people prayed for forgiveness or prayed for um, uh, salvation because they're afraid of what might fall upon them rather than a, a, a true heart that recognizes that, that I'm reconciled, you know, my sin causes me to not be reconciled to God. So I repent of my sin, not so that I can escape hell, although that is one of the wonderful bennies in the package, but that I can be reconciled with God. And that I continue to walk in repentance, not because I don't want to be exposed or because I don't want people to, to look at my dirt, but because my sin causes me to be, my, my relationship with God, it causes it to, 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 to be diminished. And my desire is to be in right relationship with God through Christ. By a work of the Spirit. And so I walk away from sin. I repent of sin. Not because I'm afraid that, oh gosh, 
you know, I don't want that to happen to me. I walk away from sin because I want Jesus. I walk away from sin because I want to be restored to, 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 to a, a, a relationship with God, my Father. That's my motivation. And it's pretty clear that that's not Simon's motivation. His motivation is self-preservation in the front. It's, it's perpetuation of his own power. His motivation is a, a desire to escape judgment. And again, I get it. We, we've grown up in the later part, most of us, the later part, I say most of us because some of these kids were born in the mid-90s, if you can imagine that. But most of us in, in, have grown up in the last half of the 20th century, and the gospel in America in the last half of the 20th century was, you don't want to go to hell, do you? No, I don't want to go to hell. No, who wants to go to hell? No, actually, yeah, I, I would enjoy that. I would enjoy a life, uh, an eternal... Uh, no. But we've lost the impetus of the gospel in this country, and it is reconciliation with God. That's the motivation. It's not power. It's not a better life now. Crap that that is. It's none of that. It's, re it's reconciliation with God the Father through God the Son, fueled by God the Spirit. The passage ends this way. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, this is Peter and John, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, I, I do travel a lot, and um, generally when I'm on my way home, I'm ready to get home, right? Uh, I came home from Southern California the other day, didn't talk to anybody the entire way. It was wonderful, right? When I was in Cuba a couple weeks ago with Jim, that dude wouldn't not talk to people everywhere we went. Every plane we got on, every cab we got in everywhere it was like hey what's going on with you do you know jesus do you know jesus do you know jesus and it was great <laughs> so thankful for jim <laughs> he also got propositioned by more prostitutes than any person i've ever seen in my entire life because <laughs> he's talking to people i'm like that wouldn't happen if you didn't talk to people <laughs> but peter and john they continue on their way, and they continue on their way in Samaritan villages. Now, again, these are two Jews. You would think that they would be, they would be quick because most Jewish people are quick to get out of Samaria. They're, every Samaritan village they come upon on the way to Jerusalem, they're sharing the gospel with people. They're looking for opportunities that with great intentionality. Um, the gospel continues to go forth through what? What does it go forth through? They testified and, and, and when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, the gospel goes through the proclamation of the scripture, the proclamation of the gospel and the proclamation of the scripture. That is what testifies to the gospel. It's, it, it, it is wonderful to be in a place and to serve it. But if we're not willing to share Jesus with people, we might as well pack up and go it's great that this church is in this community, but if it's not willing, and I think that it is, don't misunderstand me, but if it's not, or if Missio is not, or if any other local congregation is not willing to proclaim the gospel into the midst of this, this culture and into the midst of this place, then we should shut our doors, get real jobs, and go about our lives. As simple as that. Well, Levi and I should get real jobs because I think that we're the only ones that get paid for this. So um, anyway. And then you might be thinking, Levi and I should go get real jobs, but I don't really want to talk about that right now. <laughs> so we'll, as we wrap this up, 
a couple questions and, and I'll be done. Samaritans responded to the gospel in the front half of this passage. And they responded to it because they saw that it had power. They saw it. They saw the signs. Now remember, the signs uh, throughout the gospels, the signs in the book of Acts, the signs that go on, these are things that are there not because the signs themselves. Jesus said, you see the signs and that's good, but believe the words that I've spoken. Right? And so the signs become a thing that point to the word. So in the same way, the way that, that you and I serve the communities around us, that becomes a, a, a pointer to something, an opportunity to leverage those things into the proclamation of the gospel. So they saw with their own eyes, they, they saw people healed, they saw demons cast out, they saw the, the lame get up and walk, and that, that opened up their minds to something, that there was something greater. And into that vacuum came the gospel. And the gospel is the thing that transformed them. And so the questions for us tonight is, have we responded to the gospel like the Samaritans? Do we see like... That, that it is, as Paul declared it to be, the power of God unto salvation. That there is not salvation under any other name than under the name of Jesus Christ. And are we willing to walk away from any and all syncretistic expressions of Christianity or spirituality? Like, there's nothing worse than the phrase, like, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, or whatever that, however that phrase goes. You know, you talk to somebody like, no, I'm a, I'm a spiritual man, I'm not religious. You're like, you're an idiot is what you are. That's what you are. Are we willing to walk away from, because from, that all it is is it's a charade. And embrace the gospel. Even as believers. You say, well, I've embraced the gospel. I've, as believers, are we willing to, to look at our bookshelves or to look at the things that we spend our time on or to look at the things that we listen to and say, you want to know what? That's garbage, that's garbage, that's garbage, that's garbage, that's garbage. Well, that makes me feel good. No, no. The garbage, 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 and embrace this. Not how I feel about this, not what I want this to say, not what I want God, this as it is. I was married for 14 years uh, to my wife, and um, she changed a lot in our marriage. I changed a lot in our marriage because we were both young when we got married and we grew up. Right? That happens. Um, but there were a lot of things that, you know, I could never change her on, right? She was who she was, and there wasn't anything she could change me on, right? I mean, I was who I was, right? And there are times that we think, well, you know, I can change Jesus. No, you can't change Jesus. Jesus is who Jesus is. You must embrace Jesus and allow the collision that is embracing Jesus to shatter who you are and allow that to transform you from the inside out. So we've got to walk away from the syncretistic. I mean, the American church is as syncretistic as any church in the world. We've got to get rid of it. We've got to repent of it and walk away from it. And lastly, do we desire to... Uh, there's two more. Like, like Simon, do you, do you want to exploit the gospel for your own gain? I've been in many churches when you talk to guys and, you know, church is nothing more than a business meeting. Like... I'm making contacts, you know, or I'm meeting people, right? Looking for love, the church, garbage, get rid of it. 
Or are you willing, because the gospel has transformed your life, to intentionally look for opportunities to proclaim it in word and deed everywhere you go? So that every man, woman, and child would have a repeated opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel without coming or going anywhere because the gospel goes out in his people. All right? Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done. We ask that you would continue to transform us. God, if there are any in this room this evening who have yet to respond to the gospel by embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation and that they would repent of their sin, be transformed by the power of your word and the truth of who you are and um, experience the joy that the Samaritans experienced when they, uh, when they experienced the power uh, of transformation that came through the gospel. God, if there are those of us in this room who are like Simon, who um, claim to be something that we're not and desire to be that thing so that we could be um, perceived as great, God, I pray that you would crush that because you will not share your glory with another. And so glorify yourself, God, in this place, we pray. God, may we be a people who are so in love with Jesus that nothing else, nothing else can come close. And may we desire to leverage our lives into others those closest to us and even those that we um, barely know as we proclaim the truth of who you are and the truth of what you've done in our homes and in our workplaces, in our schools, in this community. God, build this church, we pray. And every other church in this county that stands on the gospel of Jesus. God, we pray for North Central even this, this evening. God, glorify yourself in this building and in these people. In Jesus' name. Oh, my bless you.